Well, good morning. It's a lot brighter and cheerier in here than it is outside this morning, and that's a good thing. Well, if you made it here early enough, uh, enough I know you have been well fed. The guys did a wonderful um, breakfast for us this morning. We appreciate that. So um, I won't be hearing as many hunger pains from the congregation this morning for that. God is good. It's just the, this whole morning is just a reminder of the goodness of God and the risen Lord. And we think about the breakfast and the fellowship that's taken place. And then the tradition of the cross, I think, is fairly self-explanatory. We start with just plain wooden cross, just some wires wrapped around it. <clears throat> Absolutely no life. And then as we all contribute uh, beauty from God's nature, the final result is just a beautiful display of life. Um, colors, vibrance, and it's just a symbol of the resurrection of Christ. When he went into that tomb, he was really dead. And when he came back out, he was really alive. <clears throat> well, today is the, um, it's the culmination of the Christian Holy Week. I mean, this is the time, the Lenten season, and this particular week where we have really been uh, brought to a lot of different emotional places. And we had our Monday Thursday service, and we considered Christ's mandate to love that he left with his disciples. And that's one of the ways that people will know that we are Christians is by our love. And that's how we display the love of Christ. And then we were also brought basically to the knees of our hearts as we contemplated um, the cross. Good Friday. Have you ever wondered why they call it Good Friday when it is the day that Christ suffered his very most? It wasn't so good for him in that sense. But it was good for us because that's where he took the penalty for our sins. And then today is just the culmination. This is the happiest day or um, one of the greatest days of the Christian calendar. Resurrection Day. And this is why we're here. Because Christ rose from the dead. So this is just a continued evidence of the power of God to change lives. So I'm excited to be here. Excited to dive into God's word with you this morning. And I appreciate you and Christ in you. Well, one of the interesting things is I thought about an Easter sermon. One of the interesting things about our society that we live in, and it's probably always been like this, but at least I can witness it, is that uh, in one sense, people are prone to believe just about anything, especially in the spiritual realms. And so, for instance, we have people who... Today, there's a large amounts of people who really believe in the power of prayer, but they don't believe in any God or any higher power. So there's things that are just believed without without any kind of logic or sense, threat of logic or sense. They're praying and reaching out to a higher power or they're looking for help that they are not able to gain on their own, and yet they don't believe that there's really any help out there. But there are people that believe that. And another example of just kind of believing things that don't really make sense would be uh, those that believe in God and all the gods at the same time. Sure, I believe in God. I believe in Allah. I believe in Yahweh. I believe in Buddha. I believe in Gaia, uh, Mother Nature. And it's, it's a belief that they have. They do believe in a higher power, but they won't give that higher power any particular or specific name. And, of course, 
when you think about that, if you read the writings of these higher powers of these gods, you will find that the gods themselves don't agree that there are other gods. There's, there's conflict in what they say. There's conflict in their teaching. There's no harmony to it whatsoever. And so it's just it's evidence that sometimes we check our brains at the door, if you will, when it comes to things, in particularly spiritually. Then on the other hand, there are things, spiritual things, such as the resurrection, that, that does have a, a thread of logic. That, that there, there is some fact behind it, and it does make sense. And yet, they are often, or particularly the resurrection, is often the most resisted thing out there in people's hearts. Uh, people become cynical and, and skeptical and very difficult to win over. And some will say, no, it absolutely didn't happen. Or some might say, well, yes, it happened, but what's the big deal? It doesn't really mean anything to me. Others will say it's just a myth that the disciples made up to start this movement that never really happened and to say that their Messiah rose from the dead. So there's just a lot of different thinking out there. So in light of that, I just want to cover two questions this morning that are very, very important. And one is, did the resurrection really happen? Is it fact or fiction? And then secondly, uh, if it did happen, then if he's not in the tomb anymore, then where is he? Where do we find him? Where do we look for him? And what does that mean for me in my world and my life? So that's where we're headed this morning. And to answer these questions, I want us to turn to the, the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to read chapter 28, which contains 20 verses. So if you would turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to read these 20 verses. It tells us the Easter story. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a su sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people 
His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The resurrection, fact or fiction. When we look at Matthew's account, at least, I think we see three reasons why Matthew's account convinces us that the resurrection really did happen. And a lot of those reasons are because he includes things that if you were trying to fabricate a story or make something up, that you wouldn't include in your account. The first is the testimony of the women. Verse 1 tells us that the two Marys were the first to arrive at the scene and see that the stone had indeed been rolled away and that the tomb was empty. And they're instructed in verse 8 to go and tell the others that he is not here. Jesus has risen. The interesting thing about this account is that, sad to say, in that culture, uh, women didn't really have full citizenship. Uh, women's testimony was not regarded as valid. In fact, when you entered into the courts, uh, women could not give a legal or credible testimony of anything. So, in other words, uh, a testimony from a woman just wasn't considered credible. That was, sad to say, the cultural norm. Uh, nor did they have other rights as well. So, in essence, this testimony... By the standards of the culture, with the women being the first to see it, really didn't have any credence to it. And so why bring this up? But to say that if you were trying to fabricate something, you're trying to make something up that didn't really happen. One of the worst things that you can do is have women as the first witnesses to this greatest event that ever happened in history, this event that is really the foundation for all of your teachings or for the movement to come. In other words, it's not convincing at all. In fact, it works against your credibility because who would believe them? Uh, what they what he should have done if, if he was trying to convince people of something that didn't really happen is skip that part and move right ahead to the part where James and Peter or I mean John and Peter raced to the tomb and then they saw that it was empty. So this is an interesting fact that Matthew includes this. And why would he include it but for the fact that it's true. That he is recording something that really happened and he is sharing it in such a way with people that he is sharing each event as it occurred truthfully and reality. So he's recording it because it really happened. Another 
argument against the resurrection a lot of times is, well, in that day and age, people were very gullible. They would believe just about everything. Uh, they weren't very well educated and they weren't scientific you know, minded. And so the disciples could be very passionate about this and people would just believe it even if it didn't happen. So they would fall prey to this kind of thing. Well, one of the problems with that is that I can't say that people were any more gullible in that day than they are today. I mean, look at all the scams that happen. We just we fall for things. I'm reading about scams in the local paper. We just have a tendency to believe things. So I don't know that there's any credibility in the fact that people were any more gullible back in that day as they are today. But also when you read the New Testament, you actually find that you, you see what people believe in. It's pretty plain and clear. And you also see that they stand behind what they believe in, whether it's Yahweh or another God. So the gullibility argument isn't really that valid. But also, as you witness in our testimony this morning, at least in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus reappeared to his disciples, they, they knew him. They spent years with him. When he reappeared, not all believed. Some doubted. And this is a person that they've already known. They know what he looks like. They know what he acts like. And here he is before them saying or appearing as the risen Lord. And some of his disciples are so convinced, they just immediately hit the ground. They worship. They bow and they worship. This is our Christ. And yet others that had that same uh, relationship with him were still just not that sure. So the, the idea that they would be gullible and just believe everything doesn't really fly. And so why would somebody who's trying to convince others of something that really happened that didn't, why would he include that even those that were closest to him his disciples, there were even some of those who didn't believe it. That would cause you also to lose credibility. It wouldn't be convincing at all. Of course, we have our skeptics today as well. You, know, you, you see things and you hear things about God or about Christ and, and, you, and you know some of them are real, but then some things you just are not so sure about and we doubt. I know that there was a time in my life where I didn't connect all the dots and I was skeptical and cynical about things and I certainly had lots of doubts. But in this scene, you have the disciples who see the risen Lord, at least some of them, and they are convinced enough with all of the events that had taken place that they bowed and worshipped and recognized him as the Lord. And so events took place. And eventually the, the disciples that doubted, they also became convinced. They were won over. What, whatever it was, that final straw that issued that last little, got rid of that last little bit of resistance. Because people hold back. There was a time when I was holding back. For me, it came, there came a time where I actually knew it was true. It had to be true. And God had bore witness in my heart and circumstances and all the ways that he works in the, in the world. And it just came down to where I just was flat out resisting it. 
But eventually God won my heart over. There just were too many things, too many evidences. God was bringing things into my life where I bowed the knee. And that's what happened to these disciples. And perhaps maybe that's what will happen to some here this morning that maybe know or have an idea. Yes, it's true. And I believe and I want to believe. But there's still that little bit of resistance. Maybe this will be the day that you are absolutely convinced that the Holy Spirit will enlighten your mind and the eyes of your heart. So that you can also bow and be a worshiper of the risen Christ. They tried not to believe and they caved. May we all cave this morning if we have not placed our faith in Christ. And then another aspect that I think is um, gives credence to the testimony really of all the Gospels is how devoted the disciples truly were. Verse 20 gives us the Great Commission. And this is when Jesus, he's just got his small gathering of disciples there. This is when he he looks at them before he ascends into the heavens. And he literally tells them to go into all the world with this message of good news. Now, if you think about that scene, this is like one of the remotest parts of the world. A lot of that land in, in the Middle East is desolate. And this is just a band of disciples that many would probably consider nobodies. I mean, they are, for the most part, a lot of them are just fishermen. I mean, they they cast and mend nets for a living. That's what they do. They're not known for their acumen. They're not known uh, for their great wealth or this high place in society that would give them the power and the ability to be able to go out into all the world. They're one of the, or perhaps the least likely that you would say, they're not the... Kind of, we're going to make this thing happen, people, most likely to succeed. And yet Christ tells them to go into all the world and they do it. They go into all the world with the message and they really spread it. And you think, how? How could they possibly think that they could go into all the world with their credentials? But they're standing before the risen Lord. And I would imagine in their minds are thinking, if he can rise from the dead, if he's going to tell me to do something, then I can do it. And they just assume that they could do it with their faith and their trust in Christ and the power that he had displayed in them and through them and also with his own miracles. And so they're really given an impossible task. And yet they, they plow ahead. And history shows they did do it and they did go out and they did make disciples As a matter of fact, they never stopped going. They never stopped preaching. They never stopped sharing. And history says that uh, the majority of them, if not all of them, were literally martyred. The only thing that stopped them from going, going, going with this message was death itself. So you have this testimony of lives that were truly, truly changed. And how many are going to go out? With that kind of passion, if they're just trying to cover up some kind of lie that they all fabricated and are trying to win others over to. And then, of course, you have the the, the fact that there were 500 others that witnessed the resurrected Lord. And Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. 
He says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Why is he bringing that up? See, when Matthew's account was written and when Paul's account was written, they're, they're saying that this happened. And they're also saying that there were a lot of people that saw it. So if you if you have questions, just go ask them. I'm not the only one that believes or the only one that saw it. There are lots of people out there, nearly 500 of them left. Go find them. Ask them all the questions you want. See what they have to say, because they saw with their own eyes, too. Lives were changed. Hearts were transformed. I mean, the course of history just shifted. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just go make your mind up. Ask people. What's he like? What did you see? Why do you believe it? That it really happened and it was true. And then make your mind up for yourself. So fact or fiction. I think if we just consider what Matthew's writing here. We'll see that he is absolutely convinced that this is a real thing. And he's just recording what really happened. As a fact. But let's face it. Just facts in in and of themselves don't always change lives. As a matter of fact, they rarely change lives. We, We in our techno information age were inundated with facts. We know more than the world has ever known. We know things that we don't even care to know about. I want to make sure that doesn't overflow on if you see it overflowing, or for, I don't think it will. Just give me a heads up. Uh, so anyway, no, we, we need more than facts. So I, I just think about, you know, the great fact, things that we're aware of that, that have a no effect on us. So thing that popped in my mind was the Surgeon General's warning on every pack of cigarettes. It is a fact that they cause cancer. Does that transform people's lives? So, so facts in and of themselves, uh, they don't always do it. When it comes to the resurrection, it's not enough to just believe yet it may have happened or sure it probably did happen. Because if it did happen, then we have to ask this question. If he's not in the tomb, then where is he? And where is he in my life? Timothy Keller says that there are four ways or places that Jesus is or four ways that we experience his presence because of the resurrection. The first place is that he is with us in history. In verse 18, Matthew says, Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. By making that statement, all authority... Up here and down here has been given to me. He is basically saying, I write history. I'm the final stop to all things. I sovereignly control everything in the world. And that includes your lives. Christ, the resurrected Christ, writes history. And many people hear these words about God's sovereignty and they say, well, if he is in control... If he's in complete control, then he's not doing a very good job. Because look at all the evil in the world and even look at my own life. It's not so good. There's a lot of bad in it as well. And I have my share of struggles. And that's true. 
we do have a lot of evil in this world. And perhaps even in our own lives, a lot of hardships and struggles. Things that we were, wish were different. But we have to keep in mind this phase of redemptive history. Evil is with us for now until Christ comes back. And while we're in this time of history, we have to keep in mind what is known as the cross resurrection principle. What I mean by that is that the cross represents the evil. If you think about just what we have contemplated this week, you look at the circumstances that surrounded the death of Christ. He had followers. He came in and he did wonderful things. He healed the sick. Because of him, people that were blind from birth could see. People that were being tormented by demons were set free. God's glory, heaven had visited earth. People were being fed. But then that week, everything just shifted and turned. Now this great man, this holy man, he was falsely accused. And then he was abducted. At night. And then he was, he was beaten, whipped, and then he was crucified and he died on the cross. And you can imagine people were thinking, this is not good. There's no good that can come out of this. It's dark now. My light's gone. My hope is gone. And we do the same thing. We're, we're fall prey to the same thing. Things happen and we look at them and we say, ah. There goes the good in my life. That sure didn't last long. Now what am I going to believe in? What am I going to hope in? My dream was crushed. Where do I go from here? There's no way that any good can come out of what's happening in my life now. It's just too bad. It's one thing after another. I can hardly even come up for a breath. And that's because we forget about verse 18. We forget that Christ is writing history and that good will come out of it and that he works all things for the good who love him. And it's just like the cross. What did the cross turn into but hope for the world? Because Christ, though he was laid into that tomb, completely dead, walked out of it completely alive. And so things changed. They didn't stay in that bad place. And that's the promise that we have. And sometimes a little bit of heaven visits our lives today. And we have that badness, but then the light breaks in and the goodness breaks in. Well, it may not be this week or it may not be next month. But that good is coming to us because it's promised. It may be the next life. But it is coming. The day where we can all glorify and sense that peace of God and the goodness The culmination. So the suffering is swallowed up in victory through the resurrection. Knowing that Christ is in charge of history can give us peace every day. Because he is writing it and he has a plan for our lives. So he is with us in history. A second way that the resurrected Lord is with us is in word. He said to go and make disciples, as in verses 19 and 20, of all the nations. And teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. And then baptizing them. And we're going to have a baptism here. The very end of our service. As further testimony that the risen Christ still lives. And is still changing hearts. And calling people home to himself. 
There's a sense when he gives this commission where he says, I am with you always. Go and make disciples as I have commanded you. I am with you always to the end of the age. He is, he is saying that as you go and teach and proclaim and witness, I am there with you. As you share the very word of God, he's there in a special way, in a, in a ministering kind of way. And I think we see this most clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. The Apostle Paul is writing to these Gentiles. And he says, Christ came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. And we'll read over that. But if you ask yourself the question, wait a minute, he's talking to the Gentiles. They're in Asia Minor. When did Christ ever go to Asia Minor and preach the gospel? He didn't. So what is he actually saying here? Those disciples of Christ, those real and true disciples that came to you with the gospel and taught you the teachings of Christ. Christ was there with you in the word, in the ministry of the word. So the word of God also includes with it the presence of the risen Christ. So we can dive deeper. That's why we are proponents of deep Bible study. And devotion and getting to know God through the word because his presence there, it's a supernatural thing that takes place. He promises the ministry. And then another way that Christ is present with us is through Christian community. Verse 20, he says, and lo, I am with you always. What does the you mean? Is it singular or plural? And. When you translate it into the English, you can't really tell there. Is he talking about a, is he pointing to one individual? Or is it, as we would improve the English language here in the South, y'all. I am with y'all. Well, it turns out that he is saying, I am with y'all in this verse. So he has in mind the Christian community. I am particularly present with you, the Christian community. The saints of God. C.S. Lewis said that when it gets right down to it, you, you really can't know, really know an individual without knowing other people's perspectives or how that individual relates to others. In other words, you can't just go by what you know about that person if you really want to know him. You have to see how he relates that person relates to different people. You know, have you ever ever seen him? Just think about Jesus. Well, you know, I saw him. I saw his devoted love on the cross. And somebody else might say, yeah, but have you ever seen him with kids? Have you ever seen that side of him with kids and how much he loves kids? Or have you ever seen his compassion with those that are sick? Have you ever seen him just break out in song or praise and joy? Do you have all of these different perspectives All real experiences. And it takes a community to really get to know a person. And it takes the Christian community to really get all of the beautiful angles of who Christ is. So as we hear the testimonies of what God is doing in our hearts. I didn't know that about him. I didn't know he could be so faithful. I didn't know he could walk people through such dark times. I didn't know somebody who was so miserable can now be so happy. I didn't know he could change lives like that. I didn't know he cared about little people 
and big people. All of these, all of these different perspectives when we share Christ in our community. I didn't know about that insight when I read that scripture. You shared it with me. You're filling my mind with the knowledge of Christ. And so our view of Christ is deepening simply by being in Christian community. And then the last way that he is with us, his presence, is in the end or the consummation. The consummation. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, this is the end, the end. Uh, this isn't like the preacher's end. And in conclusion, then you just keep going on. This is the end that really stops things. This is the end, the culmination or the consummation of all things. And he says, I am with you, meaning those who have repented of their sins and confessed Christ as Lord and Savior and have devoted their lives to living for his glory. I am with you to the end. So for those disciples, that's our end. Our end is eternity in the presence of he who is with us now. But there's also this sense in which he's waiting to be with us in the end, in the final days. Waiting to receive us into that place of glory. The reason this is important is because the end that Christ is talking about here before he ascends into the heavens. He's talking about that another pivotal point in history. The resurrection was a pivotal point in history. And again, that's why we're here today. Literally, because Christ walked out of that tomb. We, we would not be having this meeting if Christ had not walked out of that tomb. And living the lives that we're living. But the end is another pivotal point of history where everything takes another turn. And never goes back to what it used to be. It takes a turn for the better. And stays that way forever. So all the things that we weren't sure about, the questions we had, all the fears, all the struggles, the hurt, the pain, the burdens, will all be replaced with this beautiful package of goodness and peace and warmth and and shalom, what Scripture calls shalom, where, you know, for the first time in my life, everything, Everything, no loose ends, everything is just perfect. It's just right. Because he has risen, we have this happy ending. It's what we kind of long for. It's what we see or read in, our, in the greatest books. You have this kind of turning point. Or in movies, J.R. Tolkien says... No matter how bad it looks, talking about this turning point, no matter how bad it looks, no matter how many enemies there are, no matter how overwhelmed or dark or flooded, suddenly there is a rescue, a hero. And it all turns out okay. You catch your breath, your heart is lifted. Joy begins to take over grief and anxiety. And for the first time ever, you know what it's like to be at peace with everything at the same time. No more bad decisions. Not even any more 
bad moments. They are a thing of the past. The gospel has one big happy ending. And it's the consummation of Jesus Christ. And we can't, as much as I'd like to, and perhaps you, we can't push the fast forward button and make it come today. We just have to wait. But that is the promise. So, Christ, He is not there. He's there. He's here. He's here with us in in history as He writes the pages of our lives and walks through every day with us through the sunny days and the dark days. And He's here with us in the Word where we can literally fellowship with the risen Lord as we sink ourselves and immerse ourselves in the Holy Scripture. And He's here among us in Christian community with the saints as we all dive deep together and show one another what it really means to be a disciple of Christ. What it really means to know Him and glorify Him. You can't see that in just one life. It takes the group. And then we have Him and the hope in the consummation where He's with us now, but He's waiting to receive us into that place of glory. See, we are and will be the happy ending. We're a part of that turning point that's going to take place in history and never, ever, ever go back to the things and the hardships that we are experiencing in life. And we have that because Christ is risen. The Easter story says that He is not in the tomb. What does your story say this morning? How is your story being lived out? Do you believe in the resurrected Christ? This morning is an opportunity for you to decide for yourself. Based on what God is doing in your life. What you're hearing from His Word. What you're hearing from other people. And what you're seeing circumstantially. The Lord is always seeking us because he loves us even in our state of sin he wants to call us home and give us this happy ending and so i pray that if there's anybody here this morning there's no better time than to let go of that resistance and be a worshiper of the risen christ may god bless the preaching of his word